This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is for you to gain greater insight into the challenges and rewards of the Chief Business Officer role. Find out more from today's episode at www.nakubo.org. and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Megan Strand, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by Craig Woody, who is Vice Chancellor for Finance and Business at the University of Denver. Welcome, Craig. Well, thank you, Megan. Uh, Appreciate being here. You've been Vice Chancellor at the University of Denver for 22 years, but you've been with the university for over 30 years, which is incredibly impressive. So I was hoping you could start out by telling us how you landed at the University of Denver in the first place? Well, a little by luck, I guess. Uh, I was in public accounting, uh, graduated from college in 1975 and uh, went to a couple of different offices. And I was uh, in Denver in 1983-84. And there was a gentleman who used to be the managing partner of the Austin, Texas office. And he transferred into the Denver office to do some oil and gas. He was a partner and had actually cold called out here at the University of Denver uh, to get audit services. And the CFO at the time, the woman who ultimately ended up hiring me, Liz Williams, said, I'm not interested in changing auditors, but I do need a controller. And I was uh, among a whole bunch of people at this time, at that time, I should say, in public accounting when the oil industry was going south in Denver or the Rocky Mountain area. And uh, I was told I wasn't going to make partner and uh, so start looking for a job. So I knew a little bit about higher education and had done some nonprofit audits. And I was at the manager level um, and took the job here. And I've been here for uh, 32 years thanks to uh, a cold call that uh, ended up not getting the audit, but it got me a job. So how then did you move into the vice chancellor role? Was that just a natural progression? It seems like a big leap from entry-ish level to vice chancellor? Were there any intermediary intermediary steps there? Yes, I was hired uh, in 1984 as the uh, controller. And so I wouldn't say that that's uh, an entry level, but it certainly is um, more of a tactical operations type of a role. And I mentioned Liz Williams hired me and I worked for her for um, five years. And then um, actually the University of Denver kind of went through a a real transformation under the leadership of a man who became the chancellor. Uh, His name is Dan Ritchie, and uh, that was 1989. And he hired uh, a fellow named Jim Grismer, who became my boss as the CFO. And uh, I worked for him for five years and actually learned a lot in that 10-year period, five with Liz and five with Jim. I I no doubt was not ready uh, to be the CBO Uh, when I started. I was probably appropriate to be the controller, I guess. But even at the time when Jim started, um, I learned a tremendous amount working for him for five years. And I should add that during that period of time, he worked for Dan Ritchie, who was the uh, chancellor. Dan worked, ready for this, he worked for free. Oh, my gosh. Um, He did it as a volunteer. He came off of the board. He had just retired, and he worked for uh, 16 years as the chancellor for free and has contributed a lot to the university. I'm I'm talking about a substantial amount of money, 
But more importantly is that when an individual like that works for free, um, people on the staff get it. They get it very quickly. And members of our community also recognized uh, Dan's commitment to the university. And uh, he built an incredibly strong board. And I think that um, the processes that we adopted, developed and adopted, and the uh, commitment that we have to quality, commitment to that students are the reason that we're here, all of that was, um, I think, to a large degree, Dan's doing. And the university, as I've mentioned, uh, went through an incredible uh, transition, including his ability to raise money. We've built a lot of buildings. Half of our footprint is new within the last 20 years, thanks to Dan. Wow. And um, I think the um, fact, the beauty of the campus is recognized by just about everybody. And it is uh, really the backdrop for uh, an incredibly vibrant, um, particularly undergraduate experience. Well, it sounds like there's been a lot of transition in those 30 years that you've been with the university. But outside of buildings and uh, the influence of Dan on the university, what's changed in the University of Denver during your, t- your, your tenure there? Well, let me uh, start most recently with um, in September of 2014, Rebecca Chop became the university's um, 18th chancellor, CEO. And um, so it's only been uh, two years She's starting her third, and she has developed, and I think this was was approved, in fact, by the board in January of 2016, a strategic plan. And um, I am, frankly, uh, proud to say that I don't think anybody could have done it. Certainly, I couldn't have done it uh, like she did. We have, um, in the development of that strategic plan, focused on, um, for instance, uh, making the undergraduate experience more robust. Um, the increased level or an increased level of engagement and community service. We're working, if you will, on extrapolating what we've done extremely well over the last 20 or 25 years in the, on the, I should say, 125 acres of campus. And we're going to go into the neighborhoods with what we call the DU district. But one of the important things about that is that uh, other than, you know, code compliance and uh, getting permits from the city, you have to, if you will, work with um, existing neighborhoods and with businesses that don't exist today. You're trying to make, if you will, from the perimeter of the campus out a half a mile, let's say, more vibrant. So you're going to introduce, if you will, more activities, more entrepreneurial uh, endeavors and investments. And we don't control all of that. As uh, many uh, you know, Nakubo colleagues know, when you work with uh, neighborhood groups and when you work with uh, private businesses, they have to uh, believe in the experience and believe in the vision as much as you do or maybe more. And how has all of that changed your role? You know, that's one of the things that I've thought about. And um, I would say that the role of the chief business officer is more about um, understanding the finances of the university understanding the resources that we have to pursue whatever the strategic direction is, and that there are people who know a lot more about community development. They know a lot more about marketing and communication. They know a lot more about technology transfer and uh, development. Those positions have been added to at the University of Denver. And I'll tell you the truth. I feel that my role is enhanced because of the quality of people that I have at a lateral level. All of us report to the chancellor. So you're playing, as many people have said, the way I look at it, I guess, is is that you're playing on a better team. And I'm more than happy, if you will, to have a somewhat more specifically defined role because we have 
areas of expertise beyond what I can do being done by people who have done it either before or can do it a lot better than I can. I'm going to ask you to be a little bit introspective here, Craig. How have, and again, this is sort of over the the course of your entire career, how have you fundamentally changed over those 30 years? How are you doing your job differently than maybe you did when you first started out as vice chancellor? Well, that's a good question. Um, I do not believe in either the Big Bang Theory, and I don't believe in epiphanies, to tell you the truth. I think the most important thing that's happened to me, and maybe I'm slow, but (laughs) I don't believe, you know, that I'm probably too much different than most, is that I think that you gain confidence in yourself in the role that you're in. And I think that members of the board and the chancellor um, and other colleagues at a lateral level um, gain confidence in you. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. And I think then what happens is is that you're in a better position. Yes, you have more experience, but I think that you have greater confidence to identify alternatives, to discuss what the risks of those alternatives might be. You're focusing, if you will, on how to, as I've often said or occasionally said, you're focusing on how to ensure that the university's interests are secured as opposed to how to perfect a security interest. One is tactical. The other is strategic. The board members only want to hear from you on the strategy. They assume that you can do the op- the, the operations and the tactical. I have gained in the experience and the confidence to do the strategic, and I leave the operations to uh, my office. So when it comes to the strategy piece, which it sounds like is a big cornerstone of the role, what would you say are the most important skills that enable you to accomplish that? Well, that's good. I was told a long time ago by the university's first provost, as the chief business officer, one of the things that you should do is to bring to the table your capital would be the currency of information and the accuracy of the information. But assume that there are plenty of people on either side of an academic issue or a programmatic issue that can argue either side and that it is probably not productive for you to be one more person in that argument. It is probably best for you to be clear and to be accurate on the amount of resources that the institution has to pursue this strategy or that strategy, and probably to honestly make the call, when are we likely, if you will, to exhaust the level of resources in the pursuit of those strategies, or uh, when might it be too risky? And so I think that people are really looking, if you will, for a unique role, not one of many. It sounds like that you have fantastic enthusiasm for your job, which is excellent. Is there anything particularly exciting for you personally about what you're doing today at the University of Denver? You know, we all have bosses and we all have subordinates unless you, you know, are like in an entry level position, right? So I actually have an incredible amount of respect for the boss, for my boss, Chancellor Chop, for the quality of people that I work with on the senior staff and the of the people who run the functional areas, all of the division heads of, of business and finance, the physical environment and the financial environment. If you think about the ability to, say in the morning, you have an assignment that would cause you to interact with the chancellor and the provost. And in the afternoon, you're working with the controller's office in the amortization of discount or premium on bonds. I don't think you're going to get those two issues confused, right? You're going to be talking with the chancellor on strategic issues. You're going to be talking about amortization with the controller's office. Don't get the two confused. But the point is, there 
on both sides of that reporting relationship. They're really good people, and it makes the job very exciting. The interesting thing, the important thing, is you have to be able to move, I think, if you will, up and down that continuum effectively um, and perhaps uh, be able to compartmentalize reasonably well. So after 30 years, is there anything that still keeps you up at night? I heard this a long time ago, is that if you go through the things that do bother you, they tend to be the people problems in life. Hmm. They're not the technical problems. We can solve technical problems. And even if the technical problem is principally a limitation of resources, we can get around that. But until you have all of the people on the same page, that is what I tend to lose the most sleep about. So I think the issue is if it's people who report to you, you want to make sure that the expectations are abundantly clear so that everybody is on the same page. And I have to tell you, operations-wise, I have very few items, very few issues that ever keep me up at night. What I have to focus on are perhaps either the new opportunities and the things that represent the choice between alternative A or B, mm. or some variation, if you will, uh, of alternative A. At this point, or that, I'm not saying that very well, but the issue is until everybody is on the same page, that ambiguity is what keeps me up at night. So you want to resolve that, I think, at a reasonably uh, short period of time, as short as possible. What strategies do you employ to get people on the same page if they're not? Well, we have used successfully, I have to tell you, the balanced scorecard, um, which I think 50 or 60 percent of the major for-profit multinational companies in the United States use. Mm -hmm. But a lot of nonprofits use it as well. And we have used it for over a dozen years. And this always, this I should say, goes back to um, Chancellor Ritchie. And I do not believe that you have a strategy de jour. I do not believe that you have a metric de jour. If you're talking about operations, whether you're talking about campus safety, it's safety on campus, protection of people and property. That doesn't change very much. If you're talking about the built environment or you're talking about the maintenance and the cleanliness of grounds, that doesn't change very much. So the one thing that we've done is rather than me sitting in my office and demanding accountability and wondering where, you know, reports are, wondering where people are at, are they pursuing that um, strategic issue? Are they pursuing that operational issue? What we've done is we've uh, articulated strategy. We have metrics that go along with it. We have semi-annual meetings. And you, I'm not kidding you. You effectively have everybody on the same page. Now, here's the important thing about that. We have now integrated Balanced Scorecard with Enterprise Risk Management. We've aligned that with the university's strategic plan written by the provost and the chancellor. Hmm. And we have a once-a-year meeting where we have five departments. It turns out to be five in the physical environment, five in the financial environment. And we talk about the things that they're doing at a strategic level within their own operations. It's not about what the chancellor's doing. It's not about what the provost is doing. It's what they're doing. And the thing is, and I, I have this, if you will, in my mind, and I've used it, uh, we should use, I should say we have used it for a long time. You're showcasing the accomplishments and the um, outcomes that the staff is responsible for. And there is nothing better than to give somebody the opportunity either to present to a standing committee of the board or the chancellor and the provost and let them take credit for the good work that they're doing. And all I have to do is I just sit back and let the meeting take its course. What are you doing in your job today, Craig, that you never would have imagined you'd be doing, let's say, 10 years ago? Well, 10 or 15, maybe, I guess. Sure. But 
I, I think, you know, if you look at it where we're at today, we're a lot further along. I'd I mentioned, for instance, the campus is beautiful. It's 125 acres. The natural extension is to make the university area a destination where people will not only come for a performing arts event or a keynote speaker or an athletic event, but they'll come perhaps for dinner or something like that. So I think as we extend into the neighborhood, I think the town and gown relationship, I think the development, if you will, of private enterprise through P3, um, public-private partnerships, these represent areas that probably um, are opportunities for where the university is at. They happen to be aligned with the progression of my career, but it's not about me. It's where the university is at, and I wished, if you will, that I knew more about it. But I'll have to tell you, I'm doing it, some of it today. There's people who know how to do it a lot better than I do. But 15 years ago, we weren't there and we weren't doing it. That is an area, that and the um, commercialization of um, intellectual property. I wish I knew more about it. Um, we have about $25 million of a sponsored research. I wish we had more. Uh, but there will be, um, I think a, there is a commitment, I should say, to that. And uh, there will be uh, future opportunities to do more. Sounds like you've got a lot of different exciting things happening. Well, I think the university has a lot of things going on. I have a share of it. Craig, when you look back over your career, who would you say has served as a professional mentor to you? We're all, I guess, products of our experience. And I mentioned that um, about um, in 1989, uh, Dan Ritchie became the chancellor. And about five or six months later, he hired a fellow named Jim Grismer. He became the chief financial officer and he was my boss. I worked for him for um, five years. I learned a lot working for Jim. One of the things that he said to me at the time, which I think is important, is he said, it's my responsibility, Jim said this, to create opportunities that you can showcase what you're capable of doing so that you have a chance to apply for this job. He says, either when I get promoted or when I move on, something to that effect. Well, he became the, the dean of the College of Business in five years, and I think it was a uh, uh, a dream of his. Uh, he really wanted to be in the academic side of things and did quite well. And so I became the chief financial officer and Jim was the dean and stayed on this campus. I remained close to him and had an opportunity from time to time to um, interact or chit chat or whatever, even ask for advice. I probably, if you mention any one single person, probably him. And I learned a lot from Dan Ritchie in terms of um, his commitment, if you will, to quality, as well as the strength of the board that he built. And the interesting thing about that is, is that Dan didn't view other members of the board. He had been on the board himself. He didn't view that as in any way diminishing his role. He looked at a stronger board as enhancing the role of the university and having, uh, if you will, the potential to make better decisions. And I learned from Dan, the better the people are around you, whether they are higher or lower in the hierarchy, it doesn't make any difference. A better organization is where you want to be. And it's probably a translation, if you will, to the quality of the people. What would you say is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today? Well, I, my personal opinion is I think that the hollowing out of the middle class represents a tremendous uh, challenge for um, higher education as well as for America in general. Um, last month was, I guess, last year, I should say, was the first time in a long time that the average household had an increase uh, in real wages. Um, I think that that translates to higher education with um, state governments give less to state schools. The population in general, driven by demographics and some of the things that I've mentioned in terms of real income, 
put an increased demand for public and private institutions on increased size of your endowment for need-based financial aid. I, I look at that, and I think that that is, number one, heart and uh, center to the mission of the institution to give qualified individuals an opportunity to uh, succeed in the classroom. So it seems to me that the challenge is going to be how to be more efficient with the resources that you have. But I have to tell you, I believe that we have to raise more resources. So uh, pray for the people in advancement. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for your time today and for sharing just a bit of your personal journey with us. Megan, I was, uh, as I said, right when we started, happy to be here. And I, uh, I hope that uh, this has met your expectations. You can find out more about Craig and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Craig and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Oh, 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 oh,